If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. Joining us today, Dr. Carol Swain, author, former professor, and distinguished senior fellow for the Constitutional Studies at the uh, at Texas Public Policy Foundation. Her story is absolutely incredible. It's completely inspiring. From growing up in severe poverty and dropping out of high school, uh, she went on to earn her GED, a bachelor's in criminal justice, a master's in legal studies from Yale Law School, and a PhD in political science from University of North Carolina. She spent many years as a very successful and beloved professor before leaving the university system altogether once the annoying woke students started to turn on her. (laughs) Her recent books focus on education and how curriculum like critical race theory is burning down American ideals. And she's got a lot of common sense advice for her fellow Americans and parents. Welcome back, Carol. So great to have you. Thank you so much. So um, it's been fun. I I was telling my family last night that I first got introduced to you on Glenn Lowry's show, you know, his uh, TV blogging heads. And I listened to the two of you talking about academia and what it's become. And as I referenced up at the top, the annoying students, the woke students who want everyone to talk just the way they talk and see the world just the way they see it. Uh, But you have earned the right to a different opinion. And our audience is going to understand why in about 90 minutes. Okay, so let's Start not quite at the beginning, but I've, I mean, I've heard you tell your story before, but you did grow up in severe poverty in a, sh- a shack, uh, one of 12. And it, where was that? Uh, was it Southern Virginia? Southwestern Virginia, about 10 miles from Booker T. Washington's birthplace. And what was it like back then? So it was 1954, if, I, if my math is correct. So what was life was, like for those first 10 years? I was born in 54. And... Um, you know, like, what was it like? I was living in the country. I was living in poverty. But I think that when you're around other people that are poor, you don't think about it. And by the time I was 10 years old, I was very much aware of the civil rights movement and the changes that were taking place in the country. And there was an air of optimism. And so I can uh, tell you that the poverty part you know, it, it was difficult in the sense that we did not have indoor plumbing. Uh, most of the people, um, I guess, around us, uh, and we were living in the community that most of the people were white that were around us. But when we went to school, we went to a predominantly black school. And um, I have said many times that my family was the poorest of the poor because we were poorer than. Uh, most of the other black children in that black school. And it was uh, reflected in our clothes. We didn't have a car. We had to walk uh, along a dirt road. It seemed like a mile or so, but uh, recently 
uh, I went back and probably it was a half a mile, but we had to walk down a dirt road, cross a highway, a two-lane highway, stand on the side of the road waiting for a school bus that often broke down, especially in the wintertime. And so we didn't have a watch. And so you didn't know if the school bus uh, uh, had, if you'd missed the school bus, or if it was still coming, if it was broken down. And if it was broken down, we missed school. And there was one winter where uh, me and my siblings missed 80 of 180 uh, school days because there were lots of snow. We didn't have uh, snowshoes. Hmm. What I understand your mom uh, dropped out of high school when she was 10th grade and your dad when he was third grade and only has had a third grade education. So how did they put food on the table? I can tell you that uh, my mother, <laughs> in some ways, she was almost like a feminist in that she divorced uh, uh, early on. She got a divorce. And so I had a stepfather. And that stepfather uh, was alcoholic, abusive, uh, as well as my mother uh, I grew up with uh, was an alcoholic at the time. And my stepfather worked for a white family and our home was located in a field, that shack, owned by his employer. And so, uh, you know, he would bring... um, He'd get paid on a Friday. Usually there would be a fight. There was always a struggle, you know, to eat and for food. And there was a country store owned by the man that owned the um, land that we lived on. And we would go there and get some things on credit. And I can remember going there, you know, trying to get something my mother told me to get and having the store manager say that, sorry, can't do it. Your stepfather didn't pay his bill. So um, it was difficult. I can say that I had grandparents that uh, did care about us. And so a lot of times my grandfather and my grandmother would come and they would give us food. And my understanding is that your grandmother gave you, in addition to food, something that would prove really important to your future. And that was books. Yes. I mean, those books saved my life. And I think about the woman that my grandmother worked for. Her name was Ida Corns. And and she was white and she had this brick house. And back then, a lot of uh, the whites around us had brick homes. And they were one-story homes, but they were very nice. And my grandmother cleaned her house. And every now and then, uh, Ida would decide she was going to change her furniture And my grandmother would get whatever she discarded. And this was, you know, very nice furniture. So she gave her a library and we had uh, encyclopedias as well as um, all the classic books. And so uh, my grandmother, you know, she allowed uh, my she allowed the children, you know, they were old enough to read, to have access to to those books. And she wasn't worried about whether as children we'd tear the books up or she allowed us access. And I think it made all the difference in the world. But I think Ida Corns knew exactly what she was doing when she gave my mother that, my grandmother that library. Wow. Because, I mean, at this point, if anybody had given us a snapshot of, you know, very young Carol, just given the circumstances, people wouldn't have been saying, oh, she, this is going to be a PhD college professor at some of the most revered institutions in America. But it began really with some love and some books. It doesn't take 
all that much more to spark a love of learning or an interest in it or just a little flame, but it would have to be nurtured over the years. And, and we'll get to that and how it happened, and how you started to actually think of yourself as something more. Before we leave the, the sort of those first 10 years, can you just walk us like, what was the sleeping arrangement with 12 kids and your mom and your stepdad? And I, I realize if there's 12, they can't all have been around at one time. But how did like, how did life work inside of that two room uh, house? Well, I have to say that the two rooms were expanded by my stepfather into four rooms. And once he added the uh, two rooms on the back of the house, there was a room for the children and there was a bedroom for my um, mother and stepfather. Before that, we slept on the kitchen floor. Well, once we had a bedroom for the children, there was a girl's bed and a boy's bed. All the girls slept in one bed. All the boys slept in another bed. And probably there were not more than nine of us living in the house at that time because some of the children were born after we left uh, the country. And I can tell you that I left home in my early teens, pretty much. Um, By the time I was 13 or 14, my older sister and I left my mother's house. You know, I, I, I could say we ran away from home because we didn't have permission. And we went to live with our father that we didn't really know. And that uh, created its own uh, adventures and risks. Uh, At one point, our father got ill. And so it was teenagers running the house. And I had an older sister, you know, that loved, she liked, you know, she liked boys and dating. And I was always quiet and I was not into that stuff. And so um, there were some dangerous situations that came about because of her boyfriends. Hmm. Mm, right. I'm sure, you know, b- before you got to that point, I was thinking about J.D. Vance, who had a similar situation, you know, where his mom had sort of, well, more serial men in her life and it was very damaging for him. And they were they tended to be abusive and alcoholic and abject poverty. And he did have a grandmother, his mama, who loved him and, you know, believed in him, but no money. Absolutely not not two nickels to rub together. And, you know, both of you, of course, he's running for U.S. Senate right now. So it's just these American stories are so inspirational, especially in today's day and age when you're told America's awful and you have no chance and the system's against you, especially if you're a woman, especially if you're a black woman and so on. Um, But this is 54 to 64, your first 10 years at a very tumultuous time in the country, and especially going in in 64 to 70, um, when we were fighting some major racial battles in the country and the Civil Rights Act was passed and the Voting Rights Act and all that. So what was your experience growing up in the South as a young, poor black girl with race in America? I don't think we focused on it that much. Uh, We had a television. I had access uh, to television uh, and watched the news a lot. I was interested in politics and in the news. And I, I, I believe there was an air of optimism because we, I felt like we were winning the battle because, you know, the media portrayed the civil rights movement in a way that was positive uh, for uh, black people that would be watching it on the news. And um, I remember the Kennedy assassination, I, you know, being in school and coming home and I was watching TV, you know, when Jack Ruby shot Oswell. I mm. remember that. And I also remember uh, being very interested in uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy, um, John Kennedy, 
And just watching and remembering and being affected by the assassinations of the 1960s. In fact, after Robert Kennedy uh, was assassinated, I lost interest in politics for many years. I had stayed up uh, late that night watching him win that primary. Uh, I went to bed and when I awakened the next morning, you know, he had been shot and killed. And that impacted me uh, greatly about America. And so um, I don't think that, you know, my my mother, my, my stepfather and the people I was around, my grandparents, no one talked about white people, hating white people. I was always curious, though, about why my grandfather always said, yes, sir, and no, sir, to um, white young white men or almost like teens, I just didn't understand that. And I don't think I ever asked him why. I understand it now, but uh, then I didn't. Mm. And he, what year was he born? N- 1900, I believe. Wow. Yeah. And he was a very fair-skinned. I mean, he uh, could pass for Caucasian. My mother is fair-skinned. She's not as, uh, 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 you know, she, she couldn't pass for Caucasian. But my family, you know, there were people in it that had lots of Caucasian blood. So you you mentioned 13 or 14, you and your sister try to go out on your own. And by age 16, you got married, which I imagine was another form of escape. It was definitely a form of escape. But uh, I don't know if you remember a Florida boy some years ago, may have been in the 80s. He got lots of attention because he uh, filed to place himself in a foster home to sort of uh, emancipate himself from his parents. Yeah, I can tell you that I did uh, the same thing when I was about 13, that um, I went to the juvenile court on my own and filed a petition to be placed into a foster home. And it created all sorts of turmoil in my family uh, because even though I told the truth about the circumstances that made me want to be in a foster home, um, my um, my family, they got very upset, you know, my aunts and uncles and all these people, because they felt that the social workers would come and take all of my mother's children away. Hmm. And um, I was tested by psychologists and and went through a process but on the day that I was supposed to testify, all I did was cry. I didn't mm-hmm. say anything about what was taking place. And so the judge, judge ruled that I could live with my grandmother. That still was not a solution because by then my grandmother's house had burnt down. The library was gone and she was living in a trailer. And when that didn't work out, you know, I'm still looking for escape. And I ended up deciding that getting married uh, would be a way out. And so that was part of uh, that decision. But there's something else, you know, that I share sometimes when I give what I would call, you know, as a Christian, I, I'd call my testimony or my story is that around that time, age 13 or 14, I got um, introduced to Jehovah's Witnesses and they were, uh, you know, knocking on doors and they were preaching at that time that the world was going to come to an end in 1975. And I was, you know, just thinking for one thing, I guess I believed them. I did believe them. Um, And I was at that point, um, 
I knew I was different. I always knew that I was different. And, and I always felt, you know, like I was this person that was a participant observer of, of my family and everyone around me. Well, when they uh, came, you know, in the country with their message, I started studying with them. My mother told me, you know, that I was making a mistake. She also told me that when I got married, she had to sign. She said twice that I was making a mistake. And at any rate, um, I joined them for a while. And it had a lot to do with their message. The world would end in 1975. My believing it and thinking that I wanted to experience uh, having children and I wanted to experience life. Uh, all of that were factors in my decision uh, to get married at 16. And wow. I was not pregnant when I got married. I was just looking for a way out. The man I married, I wasn't in love with. He had a job. He had a car. And that was all that was necessary. Wow. That story reminds me of uh, my brother's son, my brother, my brother's wife, and their two sons were home one day. This is down in Atlanta. And a Jehovah's Witness uh, person came to the door, knocked on the front door, and they answered and gave him a little you know, pitch on what it would be like and why they should become Jehovah's Witnesses and made it sound really good. And their, their little guy, who was, I don't know, he was probably six or seven at the time, uh, said, it sounds great. You know, they promised all sorts of fun things that they were going to do in the, together. And he was like, let's do it. And uh, my brother <laughs> looked at him and said, you understand if, you, if we become Jehovah's Witnesses, you don't get to celebrate Christmas anymore or your birthday. He said, forget it. <laughs> Never mind. The door slams shut. <laughs> they don't well, disclose that up front, Carol. <laughs> well, you know, I knew all that, but I wasn't getting anything for Christmas anyway. My uh, heart's desire. The thing that I wanted most for Christmas was a paint by number set one Christmas. I didn't get that and an easy bake oven. Yes. And uh, some of my friends have heard me tell this story so many times that this year they gave me the paint by number set. Oh, oh, I mean, the easy bake oven was revolutionary back then. I grew up, I was born in 70 and that was by far my favorite toy. It was like you actually could bake little terrible tasting cupcakes in it. So your instincts were dead on. It was fun. <laughs> One of these days, maybe you'll get that. You get that next year for Christmas. All right. So, but wait, can I just go back? Because were you living with your sister, just the two of you alone at some point prior to you getting married then? Was there a stint of just the two of you? Yeah, uh, yes, it was. And and my, um, <laughs> so I can tell you a little bit about my sister's boyfriend's. Uh, yeah. She had one boyfriend that his favorite thing to do was to get us in the car and try to uh, race a train, you know, try to beat, wait till oh, the train gosh. was coming and try to uh, beat the train across the, uh, get across the tracks. And there were several times where he had to spin the car around rather than to uh, plow into the side of the train. So, you know, I'm sitting in the back seat of the car. Then she had a boyfriend that liked to play with guns. And, uh, and I, I remember vividly the names of these guys. Well, the, this one particular one would put a bullet in the gun, you know, spin it around, and he would point it at us and pull the yeah. trigger, and it would go click, click, click. Then it would stick it out the door, and it would go off. Uh, and so he was playing Russian roulette, and I was so afraid of the boyfriends. And we were living in the city at that time, the two of us. Uh, and eventually, my sister did get shot by one of those boy, one of oh. her boyfriends. Uh, and me, I was always quiet. And there was a time, uh, you know, in the uh, 
uh, late 60s. I guess that would have been late 60s because I got married in 71. All of this stuff would have happened uh, before then. Uh, we um, we were trying to make our own drugs. And there were not drugs around where we were. At least we didn't know how to get them. And so we were uh, crushing aspirins and stuff like that and putting it, rolling that up. And when when drugs did become available, I had no interest whatsoever. So I never smoked a joint. And the closest I came was when we rolled up those um, aspirins and tried to smoke that. Hmm. Wow. I mean, yeah, desperate times, I guess. But when I'm hearing you, I'm thinking about all these. Any one of these could be considered a major childhood trauma, um, divorce or alcoholism or fighting um, any sort of physical abuse or you know corporal punishment. Um, the Russian roulette story, the, your sister being shot, seeking to be put in foster care, you know, growing up in abject poverty and so on. Any one of those could be considered a major childhood trauma that would be predicted to come back to cause, you know, major issues later in life without some massive intervention. And I'm looking at you now and I know your resume and I've listened to you a million times. You're brilliant. And I, you're just such a deep thinker on so many issues. So like I'm left wondering, I don't, I never heard of you talk about the intense therapy you went through. I know you found God, but what, what made the difference between, because even people who get educated don't necessarily just let go of that kind of trauma, right? So how are you so well? Well, I mean, we could talk about my faith, but I can tell you that it's been a long journey. And late teens, early 20s, I, you know, at some point I started going to the, to the medicine cabinet. And I think this started when I was much younger. And I would just grab a handful of pills. And during the time I was with uh, my sister and we were living alone in Roanoke, Virginia, I would um, take bottles of, of pills like aspirins. And I would, um, you know, vomit up, you know, black uh, fluid. Uh, which I'm sure was blood. I didn't know at the time. And, and I didn't, most of the time I didn't go to the hospital. I should be dead. And I mean, I, I went through a period where I struggled. I was weird. I loved dark shadows. I mean, that you probably don't know that there was a show with Bonimus Collins called Dark Shadows. Mm, no, it's ringing a bell. <laughs> <laughs> well, it had was, vampires and it was spooky and stuff like that. And, and, um, but I did what doctors call suicide gestures, you know, which is really a cry for help. And I was in counseling a lot. I cannot say the counselors helped me because when I would tell them, you know, my story or what I was thinking, I guess they would always agree with me or they would be so they would feel like if they were in that circumstance, they would feel the same way. But mm -hmm. I didn't want someone agreeing with me. I wanted them to sort of tell me how messed up I was or something. But <laughs> they were like, holy crap, Carol, this is bad. This is really bad. You're like, wait, what? Get yourself together. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, most of them didn't do that. But I can tell you that I did have a male counselor, you know, and I was sitting there on the couch crying and he comes, puts his arms around me, kisses me in the mouth. Uh, and then tells me that I could never come back there again, you what? know, and like, well, I mean, he just, he did the right thing, I guess, because he said I couldn't come back there again, but that was uh, what he did. And at some point I decided that counselors did not have um, the solution. 
Uh, and throughout all of this, um, I've always felt like there was something I was supposed to do. My mother said as a child, I was so different from my other children because I was so uh, serious and that things came out of my mouth that she didn't think came out of, would come out of a child's mouth. And that I was always interested in running the household. And I can remember screaming at her that she was an alcoholic. She needed to get help and, uh, and, and giving her my opinion on her parenting skills. I can remember that. But um, she loved that. Right. And but mostly, you know, I felt like I was a participant observer and that I was watching people that were not like me. And so I did not fit in. And I can say, I guess, honestly, that uh, I've never really fit in uh, to the environments where I've been. And um, but it's fine now because, you know, age 68, I mean, I learned uh, to accept myself, but my Christian conversion experience was the turning point. Up until that time, I had suffered with a lifelong shyness. Uh, I had the opportunity to be on Good Morning America back in the uh, 90s, and I was afraid to do it. I was afraid. And it was only um, after I had my conversion experience that I started getting over my shyness and I started doing media and I felt like God impressed on me that he had given me a message bigger than me. And I had a very dramatic Christian conversion experience. Uh, uh, in a, It started in a medical hospital where my life played in front of me and I thought I was dying. And, um, and that set in motion the process that eventually changed me. And I went through a period when mostly I was an agnostic while I was in academia, but I was spiritual. Uh, believing that there was something bigger than me, God, in my life. But I believe one God, many paths. So I would not have said Jesus Christ. My journey took me through New Age, Eastern religions, uh, and just full circle to Christianity. Uh, but I, because I had been familiar with Christianity and Jehovah's Witnesses, and I did not feel like organized religion had any solutions. So I did not go the traditional route. To get well, to especially once today. the world continued after 1975, you were over the Jehovah's Witness thing. Like, well, this, Wait a minute, I left, I left them before 1975. <laughs> I was over with them before 75. And so uh, the part of my story about 1975 is that my world ended. Jehovah's Witnesses said that the world would come to an end, I believe it was October 14, 1975, where early 19, by 1975, I'd had enough of them. Uh, and I'm, and I actually was am disfellowship from them, meaning that they're not supposed to speak to me, and oh. they turned me over to Satan for damnation of the flesh. Uh-oh. That was um, I felt it felt wonderful because <laughs> it meant that they couldn't speak to me anymore um, at the time. Um, but in '75, I got my high school equivalency. I took a job outside the home working in a garment factory. I had a daughter die of a crib death. And I filed for divorce that summer. And so Jehovah's Witnesses were actually right. Uh, My world ended in 1975. 1976, Mm -hmm. I started college and all of these opportunities opened up for me. And uh, that, uh, you know, that is the significant part of my story. People came into my life. They encouraged me. They steered me. Uh, Many of those people, in fact, most of those people were white. And um, and so when I look at race, 
I do look at it differently than a lot of other people. And during the time I was at the community college uh, earning my first degree, uh, and when I was working those minimum wage jobs, I didn't just work in a garment factory. Uh, I've been a sales clerk. I've sold things uh, from door to door. And um, I've worked in nursing homes for the elderly, you know, and so I've done all these understand jobs. It. And I was working along poor white people uh, and they were just like me. You know, we all needed a 25 cents an hour raise. They loved their children. They wanted their children, you know, to have a better life, just like I did. And um, for whatever reason, I don't think that I have been wired to see race the way other people do. I know about the struggles of the poor. And so I've always felt like uh, we focus too much on race when we really need to be focusing on, um, I would say, you know, social class, socioeconomics. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, people are people. And I've just never felt the way uh, a lot of the radicals have felt about race, even though I can say that in high school, I had my militancy uh never reach high school, but during junior high, I had my militancy days in that I wore Afro and uh, I love James Brown. And mm-hmm. I can remember drawing, I have our talent, a picture of George Wallace nailing it on a tree where everyone would see it when the bus came. It was a wanted dead or alive poster. So I did that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's so much in there to dissect, but it's it, listening to you talk. It's a miracle you lasted in academia as long as you did, Carol. I mean, it's like these views, as you know, are are verboten there. And you've written and, and talked about that quite a bit as well. After the break, I'd love to get back into really how, though, like how, after you get your GED, how, how do you go from, OK, I got a GED to a Ph.D.? to professor at Princeton, to professor at Vanderbilt. How did how did that, I mean, it's it's related to her work ethic and God and the journal journey that she was on, even though he came and knocking a few times and Carol, she didn't necessarily hear him very clearly in the beginning. She got there eventually. Uh, we'll take a pause, Carol, while we squeeze in a break and pick it up with Dr. Carol Swain right after this. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. So, Carol, you decided to get your GED. You did that. And then, as I understand it, you had an encounter with a medical doctor who paid you a compliment. And you started to think about what your future might might look like differently. Yes. Uh, it was after one of my suicide gestures. Uh, this doctor, he spoke to me and then he spoke to my husband at the time. And. Um, and. After that. Um, uh, conversation, uh, you know, he uh, he just t- told me, you know, that I was intelligent, I was attractive, I could do more with my life, and I had forgotten that I was intelligent because even during those years when we were missing lots of school, my older sister and I could miss, you know, a week of school, 
two weeks of school and still go in and make an A or a B. And I guess that's a credit to my mother because I know that my mother could have gone to college under a different set of circumstances. She had polio and that was a factor in her dropping out of school. She couldn't climb the steps of the high school. Mm. And, um, and so he reminded me, you know, that there was a time when I was smart. And also the high school class that I would have graduated with, people were graduating that, you know, in my mind, I, I knew these people and I knew that they were not as smart as I was. And I learned about the high school equivalency test at a time when I was too young to take it because in the state of Virginia, you had to be 20 to take it. And I wasn't 20 when I learned about it, but I did uh, take the test and I was told that I had one of the high scores they had seen, uh, except in math. I barely passed math. I, I scored in the 34th percentile. Uh, and I think that 32 was the failing percentile. Mm. And that had a lot to do with, there's no way that you can do well and understand algebra and, and higher mathematics if you're not in school and understanding the processes. And I did drop out after completing the eighth grade. I started the ninth grade uh, and that was when I totally left school. And I remember that the last report card that I received in school was all F's and that was because there was so much uh, uh, turmoil. At that time, I was living with my sister in Roanoke that uh, there was no way to focus or study. It, it was all about survival. Yeah, I, go, I, can, I can understand that just from the stories that you're, you've been telling about that time. So you, you wind up taking the GED. You score well. And then I love the story of you, you went first to community college. And I heard you, I think it was on James Dobson's podcast, talking about how you were the one. This is the one thing I tell people, Carol, when they say, like, how should I get ahead? Or what should I do to, you know, if I want your job, what should I do? And I always say, say yes to everything, especially when you're young. Like, be the one, volunteer to work overnight, work on Christmas, work on the weekends. Be the one who says yes to everything. Empty the garbages if that's, if that's what they want you to do. Be above nothing. That's never, and you know what? I'm still that person. I'm, I'm still the one who's like, I'll do it. I'll do it all. I can, I can do it. I can turn things around. And it, yeah, like, it's amazing because not everybody's that way. So if you can just make yourself that way or commit to being a hard worker, success will follow. And that was so evident in your community college experience. Tell us what you did while you were there. You know, uh, sometimes I don't tell this part of the story because I don't believe, I don't think people will believe it. But I was a work-study student working 10 hours a week in the community college library. Uh, often the regular employees would call out. And so there'd be a crisis about who's going to work the evenings. And I would always volunteer to work the evenings. And so the library director created a full-time job nights and weekends. They hired me for that. And uh, I had a position where... When I decided to get a four-year degree, I could go to school full-time during the day, work nights and weekends, bring my children to work when I needed to, and set them at a table. You know, I didn't know God at the time, but he certainly set up the perfect uh, job situation for me. For five years, I worked for the state of Virginia, you know, getting paid what was the salary at that time. And I was going to school and because people didn't use the library nights and weekends, I studied and I graduated magna cum laude from Ronald College. Wow. 
And prior to that, I, I skipped over, I feel like these are God's messengers, but I skipped over the orderly who did they, right. he or she put a book on your bed. I, I want, I, can you just cover that? Cause I feel like well, that's, that, that's one that, of that the messengers. Two, two different stories. When I was working in a nursing home, um, an African orderly from Sierra Leone told me that he went to college with a lot of people who were not as smart as I was. I ought to go to college. And so that's how uh, he planted the seed that led me to check uh, into the community college and, and start my college education. So the medical doctor and the African orderly had words that changed my life. Now, the story about the uh, hospital experience that was during the time when I had, uh, a, I would say, Paul on the road to Damascus trip experience. Um, I was in the hospital for a medical reason. I was uh, taking uh, medications, and some people would say that it was a medication, but my life played in front of me, and I thought I was dying. And um, and I was, you know, I was just totally. I would say messed up and, and, and lost. I didn't actually, actually know that, but I know that my life played in front of me. It was as if there was a narrator showing me different points in my life, asking me to choose. And I knew about, uh, you know, I knew about Jesus. I knew about uh, Christianity, but I believed in reincarnation at the time. Uh, after I tell this story, uh, any credibility I have left in the world is gone, but <laughs> Anyway, oh, good. Let's, let's, I'm excited. <laughs> I believed in reincarnation because I couldn't explain my life. How is it that of the 12, I was the one that got out? It didn't make any sense to me. My life was always better than their lives. I was buying a new house when I uh, was 17. Um, and it just, uh, and that happened because I happened to be listening to the radio. They were advertising FHA 235 homes. All you needed was $300 down. And so I watched a brick house being built from the ground up, you know, that I lived in. And so to my family, you know, my experience was so, um, it was just, it was just so different. And, uh, but I had, and I had a lot of guilt about that. It didn't make sense, uh, you know, why my life was so much better than everyone else's. But in that hospital, um, I chose Christ, even though I didn't know, you know, anything about Christianity. Uh, but at first I was thinking, you know, that that when the narrator said you not be born again, that I had reached the top of this, you know, karmic uh, circle. And that was why I wasn't going to be born again. As a Christian now, I know that it means that you have this one life. You got to get it right. This one life. There was a black Pentecostal chaplain at the Princeton Hospital. That is not a community where you should get a black Pentecostal chaplain. You know, maybe you get Lutheran, you get Catholic, uh, Episcopalian. You don't get black Pentecostal, but there was one there. Uh, and my father had been a Pentecostal. I had not been any of that stuff. Um, and he talked with me. And there was a um, cleaning lady who threw a book about Jesus into the hospital bed and said, this is all you need. And uh and those people um, arranged for me to get baptized. I got baptized in a cold metal tub in an inner city hospital, uh, mm. inner city church in Trenton. Uh, but I didn't understand really what I was doing. And, uh, and I came out of that experience going to church for about three months, but leaving it behind and blending 
new age and Eastern religions because I never felt like the Christian religion had answers. It didn't have any power. And so for a while I had um, uh, the, the Swain religion, which was a blend of a whole lot of stuff. And it took me probably another two and, ha- two and a half to three years to really understand the Christian gospel, what it meant to follow Jesus Christ. And when I made that decision, I got rebaptized. Uh, so that is part of that part of my story. Uh, how I got from the community college to the four-year college, four-year college, um, I hadn't planned to get uh, a bachelor's degree. I applied for jobs in business, had chosen business because I had been told that art was not practical and I wanted to be practical. Um, and when I applied for jobs in the business realm, I was told I needed a bachelor's degree. I went through the college catalog. I looked for the field that had the least amount of math. It was criminal justice. Mm-hmm. And uh, that interested me. And political science, I was interested in it because it was about power relationships. And it was not that I wanted it. I wanted to study people who had power. And I was happy to go to a predominantly white school because I've been Black all of my life. I've been around Black people. I wanted to know how the rest of the world thought and felt. Hmm. Well, none of that is in, in any way credibility threatening. Uh, <laughs> I think to the contrary. Uh, but it, when you look back and you sort of see these little messengers coming, whether it's the the African orderly or the doctor or the woman who put the book on the bed, it does seem to me like God was knocking and eventually you open the door. And I know that you found that spiritually enriching and it changed your life and it changed the way you know you enjoy life. But I also couldn't help but wonder if you think it was the beginning of troubles for you in the academic setting, because it's not a particularly spiritual realm. And I'm not so sure they were, you know, based on what I've heard you talk to a lot of folks, um, that they were totally in favor of this new version of you. I can tell you that the Princeton years were, were hard, but not because I was a Christian or anything like that. I was struggling with all the trauma. I guess, from my childhood. Mm-hmm. And I started getting attacked by other Blacks early on. I mean, part of it had to do with the fact that they had Black political scientists, Black organizations. I was the student. I was the Black person that didn't join the Black Student Union when I was getting my four-year degree because I was too busy. I was trying to uh, distinguish myself. I mean, I had a plan that I was going to graduate with honors, and I had children, and so I was focused. Uh, and so... Um, and, and in graduate school, I just was not involved in the Black stuff. Uh, when I became a political scientist, I did not grow through the ranks of Black political scientists. All of a sudden, they discovered that there was this Black woman at Princeton that was getting all this attention. And, uh, you know, my first book, it won national prizes and all this stuff. There was a lot of jealousy and I was attacked and I was told that I was a conservative. And back then, I did not want to hear that I was a conservative. And I definitely wasn't a Republican. Uh, And I was told that, you know, that I had sold out Black people and that if they they could be at Princeton, too, but they weren't willing to sell out their race. And and I just didn't know. And I would look at my uh, my uh, resume. I would look at my uh, CV and and I would just wonder, you know, like, how did this happen? Uh, because everything they were saying and their worldview was so different from my worldview. But Princeton years, they were, they were a struggle. 
And I started uh, the spiritual journey right after I got tenure. And it was almost like when I was on that quest for tenure, I had told them when I was hired that I was going to do it in three years and seven years normally. And the person who chaired my search committee, he was John Giulio, you know, who President Bush appointed to be the head of the first faith-based initiative. And now he's a professor at Penn, as far as I know. Uh, he had gotten tenure in one year and he came from a working class background. Father was a cop, Italian. Uh, and so he, you know, didn't really fit either. And so I thought if if John could do it in one year, I certainly can do it in three years. And so when I was hired, I told them I was going to do that. And people said, oh, yeah, fine. And uh, and I actually, you know, went up early and got early tenure. And that created um problems and it created problems because um you know I had outside offers and I played hardball. Uh I, I was asked, you know, would what I do if they told me to wait a year and I said I'll take one of my offers. And my chairman at the time asked me, well, if you take one of your offers, can we ever get you back? And I said, no, I spend the rest of my life proving what a mistake Princeton made. And so they gave me tenure, but um, that, those were the circumstances. And so then after I got tenure, and I think a lot of it had to do with, I just wanted to prove that someone from my background, you know, could go to Princeton yeah. and they could get tenure and they could get it early. The depression came back, you know, and then that really accelerated the spiritual journey uh, that culminated, you know, with the conversion experience. Well, don't towards you think the end of my career, when you're chasing ghosts and you think if you can if you can catch the ghost, it's going to make you feel happy. It's the thing you need to feel fulfilled. And then you catch the ghost, and it does what a ghost will do, which is goes right through you and out the other way in a totally unfulfilling way. And then you're left to say, "Now what? That didn't work at all. Right now, that's right. Now opportunity, I guess, to find out what's really bothering me." You perfectly captured it. It was chasing the ghosts. And I, I won the highest prize a political scientist can win, won three national prizes, earning more money than I ever imagined in my life. And I was miserable. It was it was terrible. I was so unfulfilled. And uh, I never thought of, of suicide again, I, even though some people thought I might. But no, I was never attempted to do the suicide gestures again, but I was terribly, terribly unfulfilled. But life would have so much more in store for Carol Swain, uh, who would go on to accomplish so much, including, uh, interestingly, well, I think you were the co-chairperson of President Trump's 1776 commission, just to name one that our audience is probably familiar with. Uh, we'll get to that piece of her story, the latest on Carol's thoughts on CRT in our schools, the arrest of this Black Lives Matter uh, leader, uh, that just hit the news today for fraud in Boston. Uh, so many things to go over. So stand by uh, with more with the one and only Dr. Carol Swain. And remember, folks, you can find The Megan Kelly Show live on Sirius XM Triumph Channel 111 every weekday at noon east and the full video show and clips by subscribing to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Megyn Kelly. If you prefer an audio podcast, subscribe and download on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I, re I was looking at the reviews on the Apple uh, podcast show this morning. Love, love, love hearing from you all. Love your thoughts and your feedback. 
please go there and leave a comment. I promise I will read it. And while you're there, you'll find our full archives, more than 275 shows, including the first time Carol was on, which was episode 219. More with her in one sec. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. So, Carol, when when do you feel like things, because you wound up eventually at Vanderbilt and things were going very well there. As you say, you were award winning. I think you were there for some 17 years. So when did things start to go south and why? And I mean, nothing went wrong with your teaching. It's just the student reaction to you. Well, I would like to say that the students that reacted to me were not Vanderbilt students that had taken my classes, that I was one of five university professors who were tenured across the country that were attacked around the same time. But I was probably, you know, one of the ones that got canceled first, even before we understood what cancellation meant. And so I left academia in 2017. It started changing dramatically after uh, Obama was elected. But as far as my value to the world, in terms of um, other universities that were interested in hiring me or opportunities, all of that changed after I became publicly identified as a Christian. And I would uh, argue that my Christianity and my conservatism has um, been far more detrimental to my career I mean, I, I've been, it, it's, it's changed my life. It's changed mm-hmm. my life because, um, you know, I have a huge platform now, much larger than I would have ever had in the classroom. Uh, but I thought I would be in academia until I retired. Yeah. And, and yet viewpoints like yours are not allowed. And I don't, I don't know specifically what it was, but this is what I'm reading the Vanderbilt students, some some students started a petition. By the way, that's the exact same thing is going on uh, to Yale Law School's Amy Chua, who gets targeted by jealous faculty members and woke students who have never taken her class. Meanwhile, the line to get into her class is around the building. The students who actually (laughs) sit and take her class absolutely love her, that her detractors are all people who are like, why'd she support Justice Kavanaugh? Screw her. Um, So this is what uh, this is November 2015. Vanderbilt University students started a petition asking university administrators to stop Swain's teaching and require her. I love this to attend diversity training sessions. Perhaps you could better understand the plight of the American black uh, person if you went to diversity training sessions, Carol. That's one. And then they wanted they said that you you were becoming synonymous with bigotry, intolerance and unprofessionalism. What were they talking about? What were they upset about? It started uh, January 15th, 2015. You know, it's you know seared in my mind. And uh, after the Charlotte Hebdo attack in Paris, which mm-hmm. was January 7th, 7th, 2015, I wrote an opinion piece. 
that was published in the Tennessean where I criticized Islam. And uh, I did not uh, say radical Islam. I talked about how, unless we, um, that we needed to monitor what was taking place in our country. And I was concerned about the people that were being brought in that were not uh, being encouraged to become Americans and to respect our constitution and our way of life. Uh, I made the statement that Islam was not like other religions that, uh, that pretty much unchecked, it posed a danger to us in our way of life. Uh, the um, response was swift. Uh, the day after my opinion piece was published, I knew that my life was over as I knew it. I knew that oh, no. it was over at that point that because I had published many things that were controversial. Like I have questioned race-based affirmative action. My first book that won the national prizes, um, I uh, questioned the uh, drawing of majority black districts and said that it was a bad idea and elected more Republicans. I have always been associated with provocative ideas but there was something very different about what was taking place. And um, uh, the fir my first hint was a student emailed me and told me that I might not want to come to campus that day that a protest is being organized. And then another student forwarded me, forwarded me an email from the Dean of Students. And uh, <laughs> the, the uh, student protest was, to, uh, was against my bigotry and my hatred. And it was so uh, interesting or ironic, I guess, because I had been the faculty member that had led a battle against the university in between 2011 and 2013 uh, for the Christian groups, for the Christian uh, student organizations. I was the faculty advisor for three of those groups. The university adopted a policy that student organizations could not require their leaders uh, to uh, to adhere to faith, state, any type of belief statements or codes of conduct. And for Christian organizations, you had to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to be a yeah, leader. That's kind of a thing. <laughs> yeah. And you also had to uh, adhere to uh, biblical standards. And so that meant that if you were a Christian leader, you were not, uh, you were expected not to engage in uh, fornication, you know, sex between two uh, unmarried per persons, adultery, and uh, homosexuality. Those were things that they had scriptures in their um, constitutions and charters uh, prohibiting that kind of behavior. Well, about 15 Christian groups at Vanderbilt University lost their student recognition. We fought it. I mean, we fought it on Fox News. We had 34 members of Congress write a letter demanding that the Christian groups get their rights restored. So I had led the battle. I had written op uh, pieces along with students. We had an army and then they graduated. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the next generation comes in and they're getting woke and woke and more woke as the generations go through. And I know, I know this is a frustration of yours. I've heard you talk about it, but it's not just that they're obsessed with identity. You know, this new generation and the, the so-called wokesters it's that they're obsessed with bashing America, with hating the country. And but they are. Th but that's, that's not what you stand for. It started changing with during the Obama administration. Uh, that's when I saw the university, you know, just go full blown uh, safe spaces, microaggressions, trigger warnings, 
And then finally, you know, they wanted us to identify our personal pronouns and ask people about their personal pronouns. All that happened before I left academia. But going back to uh, 2015, it started in January. And, uh, and it, it was like they had this rally to denounce my bigotry and hatred. And like I was the person that had been the face of fighting for religious liberty for Christian groups. Uh, and, you know, they framed it as I hated Muslim students and I'd had Muslim students work for me, never had a problem with Muslim students, never had a problem with LGBT students. I had so many students that came out, you know, uh, in my classes and we talked about issues and they loved my book on um, the, my book, The New White Nationalism in America, because I have a chapter on religion and I talk about homosexuality and uh and one of the things that I say about it is, you know, like uh, the Bible, um, you know, that that sexual sins, the way the Bible characterizes them, they characterizes them as sexual sins. And like uh, I have a problem with people that focus on one to the exclusion of others, you know, and so there should not be uh, the standard where some are uh, OK and some aren't coming from people within the Christian denomination. Mm -hmm. But I had great relationships with people in the gay community, but all of a sudden the gays and the Muslims uh, and then the other students who were their um, um, uh, comrades, uh, they said, you know, that I was uh, this threat uh, to the campus. And it was so funny because, you know, all my students that had taken classes, I would say they all loved me and I loved them. But I was the professor that had the open door policy. They had my cell phone number. They had my home number. I had students come to me with all kinds of issues. If they were thinking about suicide, if they were pregnant, uh, uh, whatever was going on in their lives, they felt comfortable sharing with me the things that were taking place in their lives. And, um, and I wanted to be that professor who always had time for students who had the open door policy and in my classrooms, it was like a free speech zone. I had it on, uh, you know, on the syllabi, on the syllabi, that they had entered a free speech zone. I gave myself permission to speak. I gave them permission to speak, and um, and I had waiting lists for my courses too, and um, and so it was not a student problem, but it was one that was created because they had targeted conservative professors who had tenure, and they were determined that they were going to get something on us. Mm hmm. Yeah. I mean, rather than saying, I understand this is what her religion says and she's a faithful adherent to it. And she wants people who are joining a religious group, a Christian religious group to be able to live up to the ideals set by the church. You don't have to join the group and you don't have to share the ideals. Um, and you're not teaching those ideals in class from, no. you know, behind the lectern. You're teaching political science like that. It's there. They object to your private personal beliefs and your attempts to make space for students at the university who want to join a group based on their religious beliefs that line up with yours too. That's what happened, but that's not allowed. You're not allowed to have certain beliefs, never mind openly express them, certainly in today's America and in 2015, but don't you think it's only gotten worse since 15? It has gotten worse, but I can tell you that the university never pressured me to leave of uh, the university did send out regular press releases informing people that Professor Carol Swain didn't represent Vanderbilt, that Vanderbilt stood for 
free speech, uh, diversity and inclusion or something like that. I don't remember the exact wording, but it started with free speech. But Professor Swain has a right to her own opinion. That was always part of the statement. Uh, at some point, I can I guess I got tired of reading the statement and um, the uh, decision to leave academia had a lot to do with the reaction after I criticized Black Lives Matter in 2016. Mm. I had returned to teaching and I was on CNN uh, debating Areva Martin. And I had gone to the, to the Black Lives Matter website. And at that time, it was like they weren't concealing their Marxism. There was very little about Blacks, but there was a lot about uh, the other things they stand for. And I was shocked. And so on the show, I said that they represented a destructive force in our society, that they were Marxists. And I encouraged people to go to that website. And that uh, set off an even, even greater firestorm because on the campus, I'd had problems, you know, with, uh, with some uh, groups, you know, that, but not the Blacks. They had not uh, been involved. And so once I criticized um, Black Lives Matter, I united the uh, affinity groups on campus. Mm. The, of course, because you're not entitled to your opinion, notwithstanding your history, notwithstanding the fact that you are a black woman who's made it in this world in America. You're not allowed to challenge that that orthodoxy on BLM. And now, you know, and you're 100 percent right. Their website, they, they tried to scrub it in the wake of George Floyd. Too late, though, because we have the screen grabs talking about disrupting the nuclear family. They don't like the family with just the mom and the dad. They think that's somehow wrong. Um, very Marxist up and down the board. Now, state by state, they're being investigated for fraud. Their tax exempt status is getting pulled. There's a bunch of grifters running it left and right, including now we know in Boston, where this BLM leader, her name is Monica Cannon Grant, um, is now charged with fraud and conspiracy to commit fraud, along with her husband. They're saying that she um, used she received over a million dollars that she received over a million dollars in donations. And it was supposed to be spent on people in need, but she took much of it for herself. And so did the husband. And she paid her rent with it. And she went to restaurants with it. And she went on shopping sprees and to nail salons and was paying herself almost $3,000 a week in quote salary, but lied about that to the feds and said she wasn't taking any salary. And so more and more we see stories like this, Carol. And that's why it's like, okay, the, the concept of Black Lives Mattering is something that is not controversial and virtually everyone would agree with. The organization BLM has proven to be deeply problematic, criminally, morally, and otherwise. I agree. And most people are not holding them, them accountable. And so you, you can go after this low-level person in Boston. I want to know about the $60 million that they raise. Where is that money? How has it been spent? Will any of the top leaders be investigated and held accountable for money that may have been misappropriated? And then I want the corporations that spent their shareholders' profits uh, to, you know, to make donations, virtue signaling to organizations like Black Lives Matter to um, stand up and confess that they made a mistake, that they threw their money, uh, you know, towards a cause that was a losing cause, that was divisive, that uh, could absolutely never bring about any type of reconciliation 
in the country because it's rooted in Marxism, just like critical race theory and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, at one time, diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, was a part of affirmative action. It had some constraints on it because it had to follow the civil rights laws and the constitution. And now CRT and diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, they're totally uh, uh, separated from the uh, our, our nation's history of, of embrace of anti-discrimination. And we know that anti-discrimination and accommodations and uh, protecting individuals, that's the law of the land, not what's taking place today in this country. What do you what do you, you are actually somebody who has a master's in law from Yale. You're somebody who you know has been in the academic profession for most of her life. So when people say critical race theory is an obscure law school concept, that's not being taught in K through 12. And this is a Republican boogeyman that has been made up to scare white parents um, into complaining and to, and to pushing back on the school to not allow just actual American history to be taught. That's that's what we're told by the left. What do you say? Well, they also saying that, oh, uh, CRT, that's a course that's taught in law schools. Yeah, CRT is a course that's taught at many colleges and universities. But CRT has also um, infiltrated just about every sector of our society. And what has happened is that people who were steeped in critical race theory and Marxism, they have written children's books. And these children's books foster the idea that America is racist to the core. It's racism in its DNA. All white people are oppressors. All white people are, are guilty of racism. All minorities are victims. And it's not just the critical race theory that is most certainly being taught uh, in schools, even down to kindergarten in books. Even Black Lives Matter has a educational curriculum with many different books on uh, topics like restorative justice, gender affirming, where they tell five-year-olds five that they can choose their own sex. Uh, uh, queer affirming and um, and all about, you know, race and victimization. It is in the um, schools, in the teaching materials, as well as in the books and videos and cartoons that they have put together. You know, you have such a different view of all of this than, you know, sort of these young activists that we hear today on college campuses. And it got me to thinking when I was reading up on your writings and just some of your thoughts, what's really behind today's push? What's really behind the, the young people today leaning into these systemic racism claims and so on? And this was from, the, you wrote this, I think it was an op-ed that you submitted on Fox News. And you write, um, okay, here it is. Mostly I think I was blessed in one critical way. I was born in America a true land of opportunity for anyone of any color or background. In this country, where you start your life does not determine where you end up. When I hear young blacks, or anyone for that matter, talk about systemic racism, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. I want to laugh because it's such nonsense. I want to cry because I know it's pushing untold numbers of young blacks into a dead end of self-pity and despair. Instead of seizing the amazing opportunities America offers them, they seize an excuse to explain why they're not succeeding. And Carol, it got me thinking, 
is it, you know, the young you who had these opportunities and people looking out for her and helping her like move up, get better educated, make more money, get your own house. You know, the country's struggling a bit with that. The young generation today, we have a great job market, but there is sort of a general sense of malaise, I think, among young people for a lot of reasons. Um, some struggle to make a living wage. Some, some just feel totally disconnected from one another thanks to technology and the way we live now. And I, I do wonder if just the way we're living and the general malaise that these kids are feeling and, you know, in any other time frame in American history might have felt it if circumstances were this way, totally distracted, not seeing each other. Forget the COVID pandemic. I'm talking about technology pre that. They, they found a new thing to blame it on. You know what I mean? Like now in just addressing the real stuff that's bumming everybody out, they're latching on to identity issues that are but a mirage. Statement that you raised. It is part of a PragerU video that was the transcript. And okay. I think that if I had been a young person uh, hearing the messages that we uh, are disseminating so widely today, I don't know if there would have been a Carol Swain success story because I grew up believing in the American dream. I believe that I lived in the greatest country in the world, I believed in equal opportunity. I knew that I was smart and all I wanted was a chance to prove myself. And there are so many Blacks that have been successful even before the affirmative action, uh, even before affirmative action and the civil rights movement, uh, you know, Blacks uh, coming out of slavery, uh, they became millionaires. And so there are so many uh, Black success stories and I'm just one of, uh, of many. And I don't think that... Uh, not sure that can happen today unless uh, children have the right parents because the attitudes they develop and, you know, and what they see and what they're told by authority figures, that's going to impact them greatly. And I believe my reading Booker T. Washington's Up From Slavery as a Child uh, and growing up in the state where he was born, I think that that impacted my life. You know, you know, if he could come from slavery, certainly, you know, I can come from this poverty uh, we're sending our children the wrong messages, and we're not just harming black children. We're harming white children. We're harming everybody. Right. I mean, if there's anyone who has cause to look back at her circumstances growing up and say, I really didn't have it so great. The country didn't exactly cut me the greatest breaks. You know, the Carol pre age 18 or 19. It's you. But you've gone a totally different way. You, you've eschewed victimhood for all of your adult life, so far as I can see, and and have a deep love for America. So I don't get it. You say that you have to have the right parents. Was it your parents who instilled that in you when you were young? Was it just the opportunity? You know, you I've heard you say before, it was a lot of white male conservatives who reached out and helped you help you. Have, like what what do you think led to that love of country in you? I think it was school because, uh, you know, I was proud to be a Virginian because Virginia was the home of presidents. We had five presidents from Virginia. And mm -hmm. so when I was taught history, it has some stuff about slavery in it. But mostly uh, what we were taught was positive about our country. And uh, and I think the patriotism, you know, we did the Pledge of Allegiance, allegiance every day. Mm -hmm. And so I think that what children are taught in school matters enormously. Uh, you know, we were taught, uh, you know, that we were American citizens and that that was important. And I'm struggling uh, today 
Megan, I'm really struggling because the America that I see today, I don't recognize this country. And I'm so afraid that I will become anti-American because if this is America, uh, what I see taking place today when it comes to our civil rights and our civil liberties and uh, the propaganda that I would associate, you know, with third world countries and, you know, all of these things, uh, I don't recognize this country. Uh, someone like me, I've always, you know, cherished the Constitution and free speech and, uh, you know, the freedom of religion, the freedom of assembly, uh, and all of these things are being stripped away. And I always thought, you know, we could count on the Supreme Court. Well, we can't count on the Supreme Court because our justices have been educated in that system. I don't care if they come from the Ivy League and they call themselves conservative. They're not trustworthy. Uh, and I would much uh, rather have a Supreme Court that had justices that were selected from a wider range of schools, hoping mm -hmm. that they would be educated, some of them, to appreciate the Constitution. Yeah, that's but that, the Biden, Joe Biden had an opportunity this past time around to nominate somebody who wasn't from the Yale, you know, Princeton, Harvard corridor, and he didn't do it. Um, and we're getting, you know, a left wing ideologue, which comes really as no surprise to to any of us. Uh, he's re she's replacing somebody who was left wing for sure. And I don't know if I'd call Breyer an ideologue, uh, but in any event, yeah, the, the courts, I, I have been happy that they've been at least one last vestige where they're not totally wokeified. They There still is the rule of law. But if you look at what's happening in law schools today. They're changing all of that. They're insisting on a DEI agenda and commitment to it. And all those law students soon will be lawyers and then judges and then Supreme Court justices. And there's only one way to push back, and that's to fight. Carol's got thoughts on how. She's actually written them down, uh, and, and you're going to want to hear them. That's where I will pick it up with her after this quick break. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Carol, I know you wrote a book a couple years ago called Abduction. Such a good title for what you were writing about. The It's Abduction, How Liberalism Steals Our Children's Hearts and Minds, 2016. And part of what you write about in there is this sort of new morality and how, you know, sex ed begins in kindergarten and music is constantly promoting, you know, over the top drug and alcohol use, rape culture, all this like I really think that stuff contributes to this overarching sense of malaise that I think young people today, yes, they feel depressed that they might not be able to get ahead as easily as the American dream promises, black or white. Um, it's not that easy to get the, the house and the two car garage and the 2.5 kids. Um, but we're discouraging marriage. We're discouraging love of country. We're putting half nude people on television for every sporting event. You can't watch the Super Bowl with, you know, your six, seven or eight year old without covering his eyes repeatedly. You know, you look around and the people that we revere are people who artificially inflate their boobs and their butts and put them on display 24 seven, as opposed to like CIA agents 
who helped get bin Laden. You know, like we don't it's just it makes you feel down. And and you write about how our academic and other institutions are doing this on purpose. Yeah, you know, Megan, in 2016, when uh, I wrote that book with with uh, Steve Fiesel, we were trying to alert parents to what was taking place in our public and also some of our private schools. Now they see it for themselves. But I do mm-hmm. think that's uh, th- what is taking place in those schools is behind the rise in suicide rates among children. Uh, and if you think about it, first graders now being exposed to uh, ideas about uh, sexuality and being told that uh, they can change their sex, that they may not really be a little girl or a little boy. These are things that no matter how hard it may have been in my life, I never had to question you know, whether I was uh, female. Uh, and I think that uh, we sounded an alarm back then, but now parents post pandemic, you know, they see all of this stuff. And uh, that was the civil lining that came out of COVID. Yes, that's true. Parents are starting to wake up, but they're afraid. Carol, you know this. We talk about it a lot on our show. Very hard for, for parents to go into a school and say, why are you teaching my children uh, that they are less than because of their white skin. Why you're teaching my my child that he's less than because of his black skin? Because you're weak and disempowered is just as racist towards the black children as you're systemically racist and privileged when you say it to a white student who's you know right because of his or her immutable characteristics. And I can tell you too that again, so um abduction, how liberalism steals our children's hearts and minds, that was published in 2016. Uh what happened, you know, with President Obama's uh, safe school czar, um, I think his name was Kevin Jennings uh, initially, and then Arnie Duncan. I mean, they were the ones that uh, really um, sexualized our children by getting that curriculum uh, with, you know, the LGBT stuff into kindergarten, into those lower levels. And uh that's when I saw the dramatic change in academia. Uh, and, and for the activists, the progressive activists, they have gone into education, just like they infiltrated, you know, uh, many different institutions, including, you know, the media and uh, colleges and universities. They did it with an agenda. Uh, and I would say that uh, even Christian colleges and universities and places like that, that there are very few quote, safe places, because they've all been infiltrated by people who have an agenda. And unfortunately, many of them are teaching in our schools and they're getting on TikTok and various outlets boasting about what they're doing to our children. I have to say, I, I don't let my kids use social media, but um, Good for you. I, I don't let them do TikTok at all. And my daughter's begging me to let her get TikTok because all of her friends are on TikTok and it's fun. And all she wants to do is the little dance videos. And I'm like, I don't care. Single tear. Move on. And you know what? Life has gone on and she's just fine. You know, it's like parents need to be reminded. You can say no. You can be the mean parent and they're fine. You know, she's seen it. Her friends have it. Fine. Great. Why don't you enjoy your five minutes of looking at over your friend's shoulder? That's all you're getting. Um, I'm so proud of you to be able to do that because we need more parents that are, you know, standing up to their teenagers uh, because, you know, you are entrusted with your child's, you know, life and well-being. 
And uh, it is your job. They're your children. It's not the government's job to uh, raise children. And so um, if more parents would do that at home, but also band with other parents uh, and push back, uh, they would feel they would feel less fear. Yeah, because it's not I, I don't, one person. I don't care about upsetting her. I care about damaging her. You know, and that's right. what TikTok does. TikTok it is does. a damaging app. And so is all of social media. Um, but for the parents and I, we're dealing with this, you know, right now with a lot of our friends schools, we left our schools in New York City because they were so over the top on the CRT and the trans stuff, Carol. But, um, you know, it creeps up everywhere. And I have a lot of friends who are dealing with it in schools where they just don't know how to stop it. You know, the, the CRT agenda. What what should they do? I mean, I know it's outlined in your book, your, your most recent book, um, grassroots, you know, voting school boards like what what's the answer? I'm going, I have, you know, this book, Black Eye for America, uh, how critical race theory is burning down the house. Um, it has uh, two chapters on how to fight back, strategies on fighting back. And there are 10 proposals for resisting CRT. Uh, first, you know, learn what it is, because if you don't know what it is and you talk with uh, the average progressive, they're going to tell you that it's something that happens in colleges and universities. It's not happening in your school when it is. And so find out what it is, how it manifests itself so that you can respond. And so CRT is a course that's taught at many colleges, universities, elite high schools, but it's also a worldview that's racist. Yes. It's very destructive. And it has been disseminated uh, down through K through 12 education in the form of books and videos and various uh, teaching materials that are pushing an agenda. So know what it is. And then I think one of the strongest things that we can do is challenge the legality and constitutionality of CRT because uh, its form in many workplaces, as well as in the educational realm, it often runs counter to our civil rights laws that protect white people as well as other uh, racial and ethnic groups. Um, and the equal protection clause, I mean, the law of the land is the law of the land. And I think white people need to learn how to document. Like racial and ethnic minorities, you know, we are sort of um, primed to look for discrimination. Sometimes even when it's not there, we look for it and we find it uh, because we think it's there. But when discrimination is come at taking place, you need to document who said it, where, if you can get a video. But white people need to start thinking as minorities because in many parts of the country, you are a minority. And uh, by 2047, whites will be a minority uh, in this country. And Generation Z uh, is already uh, a white minority group. And mm -hmm. so begin to document, you are protected by the laws of the land. Um, so organizing the grassroots uh, uh, coalitions, building coalitions across racial, ethnic, and partisan uh, lines and what happened in Virginia with that election, uh, you saw Democrats and re Republicans and independents coming together because they love their children. Most people don't want CRT or any of those Marxist critical theories taught to their children. Doesn't matter which political party. And so if it's taking place in your school, it's affecting a lot of other parents. And so I think that parents need to just band together and, uh, and exercise their rights. Uh, and, and many people are running for the school board. 
and they are also running for local election. I mean, that's one of the biggest things that people can do. Um, there are multiple strategies that can be used. I talk about those and educating church leaders. The church in America mm. is in dire straits. Uh, and in many churches, they've been infiltrated by social justice warriors, and they have pastors that are more interested in social justice than biblical justice. And I think uh, that has to do with them not actually knowing the difference. And I think that you can educate them. There are lots of materials to educate your pastor. And uh, we link to some of those sources. And That's good. Uh, I like what you said, though. I just want to like remind people, when you get the critical race theory is an obscure theory taught yes. in law school, you, that's a very good, succinct, easy to remember response. It's also a worldview that's made its way into textbooks, children's books and teachings. And it needs to stop. It definitely does, because it's it's harming all of our children, not just uh white children who are bullied and shamed. And uh, it's, if it's not right to do to a racial and ethnic minority, then it's also not right to do a, to a white child. And we reached a consensus in, in the 1960s about how people ought to be treated, that they ought not to be discriminated against because of the color of their uh, skin or, or their national origin. Uh, it applies to everyone. And so uh, if we would follow the golden rule to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, we would make a lot of progress when it comes to race relations and this moment that we are in in American history. Um, there are other uh, proposals here, but mostly uh, some of the things the political left does, uh, we should do the same thing. We can uh, bring pressure to bear on corporations. Uh, many people are stockholders. Uh, we can stand up to big tech. Uh, we're doing some of that. Uh, and we also need to monitor our state and local governments because our tax dollars should not be used to discriminate against one group of citizens, any group of citizens. And so right. if it's being used to support CRT and DEI, that's discrimination. And so my book, uh, Black Eye for America, it has those two chapters on how to fight back, it also has a glossary because they keep changing the terms uh, and CRT doesn't always call itself CRT. Sometimes it calls itself culturally competent uh, learning. It calls itself social justice. It calls itself uh, equity. And sometimes uh, it's masquerading as civil rights. So you have to know what it is. Yeah. And uh, we have resources. It's uh, at our old school. It called itself Courageous Conversations with Glenn Singleton's group, where he, you know, you'd be encouraged to go to his little weekend seminar and the white people weren't allowed to say anything. They were supposed to just listen to grievance, say absolutely nothing. And then at the end of like the three days, they were allowed to say, you know, their thoughts and God forbid their thoughts were anything other than I'm sorry because they'd get shamed. I mean, the white parents would come out of there traumatized. And these are white liberals who are, you know, very inclined to like, say yes to white privilege and all that stuff, just beaten down and alarmed. And I remember looking at them thinking they're creating racists. That's what they're doing in they there. They're, this is a racism creation seminar. But they're teaching self-hatred to white children. Uh, and if, if with the social, social emotional learning, you know, that a lot of schools have uh, adopted where you get graded on your empathy and your compassion and all of this, your emotions, you get graded on that. 
Uh, if you don't have the proper reaction and demeanor uh, in response to the propaganda, uh, you can be punished by your teacher who is in a position to grade you based on whether or not you're responding appropriately. That is insane. I mean, I was just saying when you're talking about that, and I realize we're talking about in response to difference and cultural differences and racial difference, blah, blah, blah. But like when you think about think about Joe Biden and Donald Trump, who would you say has more empathy off the top of your head? Well, I think even if you love Trump, you might say, OK, he's not maybe he's not the most empathetic person on Earth. Joe Biden, he had, you know, the son and this, the the wife who died and the whole like very sad. He's an empathetic guy. Who would you so he he would probably beat Trump on that little test. He'd probably get higher marks than Trump on that little test. Who would you want in charge right now with Ukraine? Right. Who is more likely to avoid World War Three, Trump or Joe Biden? I think I've seen the polls. It's not my it's not my belief. The American people believe that Trump would not have gotten us into this mess, that Vladimir Putin wouldn't have done this under President Trump. Empathy is not the be all and end all. It depends. You're going into a therapist. Maybe president of the United States, future leaders, maybe not. Why are we prizing it universally amongst all children when people are different? Some people are more empathetic than others, and that's fine. I can tell you that one uh, area where Donald Trump wins hits hands down is empathy for working class people and poor people. And it's true. uh, in, In my experiences with him, he's always been supportive, encouraging. And this whole idea that the left would call him a racist. I don't think the man has a racist uh, bone in his body uh, and not call Joe Biden, who has a history of racism. uh, He gets a free pass. And that angers me that the political left, if you're a white liberal, you can say anything you want to say to a person like me. It's never racist. I mean, uh, that's the double standard. Whereas if you're conservative, uh, you're constantly going to be dismissed uh, and called a white supremacist because they've redefined white supremacy so that all white people are considered white supremacists rather than those who think that they are superior to racial and ethnic minorities. Mm. And when you see the hate crime hoaxes like uh, Smollett, uh, you see so many of these hate crime hoaxes because there's not enough real hate crime out there in the world that has diminished. So people have to invent it. And it's almost like there's a there's a presumption of white supremacy against all white people. And you can may be able to get yourself out of it. You can get out of a white supremacy jail free card if you prove that you're a woke progressive who's willing to pledge total fealty to the woke movement. But anything short of that, you're stuck in white supremacy prison. (laughs) You still can get in white supremacy uh, prison because I know some whites that have checked all the boxes. They've done everything right. But when it was expedient. Uh, they also got uh, dismissed as racist because if you're white, you could never defend yourself against the accusation that you are racist because they would say it's in your DNA. Uh, it's permanent. And so you have to constantly meet whatever change in standard they put out there. Yeah, it's a it's a never ending process. So, Carol, I only have a couple of minutes left and I, I wanted to ask you this question. Um, it was you, you talked about it, I think, in the Prager uh, university video about George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, the founders, and so on. But uh, you can take it wherever you want to take it. But, but my question to you is why, as somebody who co-chaired the 1776 Commission, what do you love about America? I used to love the fact that it was a land of opportunity and that a person, you know, could start at the bottom. And, you know, it was just, I love the fact that we were compassionate, 
we cared about people in other nations. And I love the fact that there was opportunity. Again, you could start at the bottom and I felt like that there were no limits. Uh, and America has been good to me uh, and my children. And I see uh, so many other people that have been able to take advantage of the best of America. But I fear that that's not going to be open for uh, people today because their minds have been poisoned. And when I'm talking about the detrimental things that are taking place today, it's not just harming racial and ethnic minorities. It's harming everyone's child. And I believe that the America that I grew up in, the America I love, no longer exists. I don't know if we can uh, turn things around. But right now, I don't recognize this country. I feel like we've been ruled by China. Mm. I do want to say to the audience, Carol said before, as somebody who comes of academia, don't feel like you have to send your kid to college in order for them to get the head. I know you're big on entrepreneurship, trade schools. And if you decide to send your kid to college, do your homework on where you're sending them. Even sending them to a Christian college doesn't guarantee they're not going to be faced with a bunch of left wing indoctrination. So keep your eyes open and make the effort. It's not easy. It's, it requires homework, staying on top of what your kids are taught K through 12, staying on top of the college options. Uh, but it's your kid and it's our country and it's worth it. Carol, thank you so much for telling your story. Uh, I want to tell everybody that her latest book, again, is called Black Eye for America, How Critical Race Theory is Burning Down the House. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I uh, want to tell you that tomorrow on the show, back by popular demand, Dr. Laura, that episode did so well. Everybody loved her. She's coming back. Can't wait. And then I want to tell you that we have a special double episode Monday and Tuesday of next week. I'm not going to tell you who it is yet. I'll tell you tomorrow. It's a big name. You're going to want to hear it. Subscribe in the meantime so you don't miss it. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.